The book of Galatians has time and again been used by God to begin a deep work in the hearts of his people. It has been referred to as the Magna Carta of the early church, the Declaration of Freedom. It would seem that each time God's people lose sight of the gospel of freedom and grace, God uses this book of Galatians to bring about a renewed excitement, a renewed passion for what real Christianity is all about, Jesus plus nothing. Let's join our teacher, Ross Gilbert, of Crossways to Life, as we study the book of Galatians to discover what we have been freed from in order to be freed to. Uh, in, in hindsight, I'm thinking I wish I made this a, a six or seven week course. Uh, not that I would want to necessarily extend those first four chapters, but I'd like to extend our time in these last two chapters. Uh, because these last two chapters, there's not a lot of deep theology. Uh, that's really been covered already. Uh, there's a few things, uh, but for the most part, Paul gets into the application now. And, uh, and that's what I'm really excited about, what, what we're going to look at tonight. Um, you know, it's amazing in Paul's writings how he often, in a single verse, can summarize everything, and then he spends the next you know, section, passage, explaining that simple verse. And what we saw when we got to it in chapter 2, that Galatians 2.20 really is one of those verses that gives the whole answer, that really summarizes the gospel. And we're going to see that tonight as we get into chapters 5 and 6. Uh, this message that I have been crucified with Christ is no longer I who live. I was crucified with Christ at the cross. The cross is where I was set free. The cross is where not just my sins were dealt with, but I was dealt with. And it's no longer I, no longer that old, unacceptable person, but now Christ who lives in me, this new creation, this Son of God, this righteous, justified, accepted, beloved child of God. And I'm okay. I am okay. You're okay. And, and that is such a crucial thing because the moment we realize we're okay, now who can we begin to look towards? Other people. Because have you noticed, there's a lot of hurting people out in the world today. Right? And the moment I realize I'm okay, who can I begin to help out with? Other people. And that's what you're going to see really is, is at the heart of chapters 5 and 6. And now the life that I live in this body, here on planet Earth, I live by faith, by dependence, by trusting in the Son of God, the one who loved me. I'm okay. And gave himself, gave his life for me and to me so he can live through me. And, and so what we're going to look at now in chapters 5 and 6 is the now what? Now that Paul has made the argument abundantly clear, especially in chapters 3 and 4, that we're justified apart from the law, and now we live apart from the law. Well, how does that, what does that look like? That's what he's going to get to in chapters 5 and 6. So my prayer is that we'll see that, and we'll begin to apply that. So why don't we open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, What a privilege and honor it is to call you that, to call you Father. In fact, we can call you Abba Father, Dada. Something your son Jesus said we could and actually taught us to call you that way because it speaks to the intimacy, the love, 
the relationship that we have with you, the intimacy. And I pray, Father, that uh, tonight um, we would see that now not as something that we need to do to make real, but something to live from now. And so I'm excited about tonight, and I ask you, Father, to be the teacher. This has been an incredible time for us together, and I, I've been truly blessed by it, Father, and I want to see you work and, and just pull everything together, Father, that we might live and experience all the freedom and grace that you've given to us. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we left off with looking at a chart. We built a chart about what we are freed from to what we could be freed to. And, and there was a great chart, and, and you guys had great ideas and suggestions. And uh, then in Galatians 5, verse 1, it opens up with, Now stand firm. Stand firm. Keep standing firm in this message of freedom. And, and you know, thinking about that, I think about circus elephants. You see, this circus, circus elephant, he's being held by this little tiny stake. How, how does a little six-inch six stake keep a circus elephant in check? They're trained, right? When an elephant is a little child, or I don't know if they call them child or kids or what, but, you know, little tiny elephants, um, you know, what they do is they take uh, either a really strong rope or a chain maybe, and they attach it to something, you know, almost immovable, like a big, sturdy tree or a big concrete post, you know, buried in the ground sort of thing. So it's not going anywhere. And although this is, you know, elephants are pretty strong even when they're little, they're not strong enough to be able to pull out from free from this tree. And so when they're little, they might try, but every time they try and they yank and they pull, how far do they get? Nowhere. So they just do laps and they, they pull some more and do another lap, pull some more. But they really get nowhere. But you see, the thing about elephants, they have great memories, right? And so they begin to learn and, and, and hold on to the idea that no matter how hard I pull, I'm not going anywhere. Now, the problem is when that elephant gets bigger and now is fully grown and is this giant, uh, uh, incredibly strong animal, it's in the moment that he feels something around his, his feet, what does he remember? He remembers this. And he begins to think, well, there's no point. I can't go anywhere. I'm trapped. Right? Now, is he trapped? Oh, it's a little small six-inch stake in the ground. I mean, he could probably pull it out inadvertently, not even realizing what he's doing. But because of what he feels and what he thinks, what he believes, he's trapped. He's in bondage. But is he really in bondage here? Uh, he's in bondage up here, right? And you see, the same thing happens with you and I. See, growing up, we were like this. We were in bondage to a law system, to a way of trying to determine whether you were acceptable or not. Uh, your uh, methods, your uh, standards or expectations, which you believed, which you allowed to be put on you, to believing this was the way to be okay. And along comes Jesus and says, you're free. You're completely free. I set you free. But then the world says, oh, no, not quite, and tries to attach a rope. But what do we have to remember? 
I am free. And that's where Paul, opening up Galatians 5.1, this is, he's really continuing on what he was just talking about. You see, he begins in verse 1, he says, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So keep, therefore, keep standing firm. This is a command to us. This is a command we need to continually do. Keep standing firm. It's not a one-time, all right, I'm done, I'm free. Nobody touch me anymore. Because the world will keep coming back. The enemy will keep coming back. The sin will come and keep coming back, trying to put you under that law system. Paul says, don't. Don't let that happen. Keep standing firm and do not be subject or enslaved or put in bondage again to a yoke of slavery. Right? Meaning, if we go back, who put us there? We do. We put ourselves there. Right? It doesn't matter what another person says or, di- or does. You're the one that chooses to accept that's the standard by which you have to meet. Nobody can make you live up to that standard. That's the standard you choose to live up to. And we don't have to. Keep standing firm. You see, why were you set free? For freedom. You weren't set free that you could work. You weren't set free that, that you'd have to jump through uh, hoops. and You weren't free to then follow the law even. You were set free to be free. You see, what God is looking for is a people in whom He can be in a loving relationship with. To have an intimate love relationship. To do life with people. If He has you there as His slave, is that love? Love demands a choice, right? If I put a gun to your head and say, love your spouse or I'm going to kill you, you're going to love them. Is it really love? No, it's just self-preservation, right? Love demands a choice to say, I don't have to, but I'm going to. And so God, he sets us free. And because you are free 100% now, not one day in the sweet by and by, but now you can love him. You are free to love Him. Remember, it's not just freed from stuff. You're now freed to. You've been freed from rebellion to now love, to depend, to trust, to obey. And that's what we've been freed to. We now have this ability and opportunity to do this. And that's what's so incredible. And so Paul then says, Behold, I, Paul, now remember, earlier on, way back a few weeks ago, right? He was stating his apostolic authority, right? Listen, I have all the authority of all these other apostles. Now I, Paul, with all my apostolic authority, I say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. There's some sad, sad words. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep how much? You can't pick and choose, but we do, but you can't. Whole law, all 613 commands, how often, for how long? That's the standard. You need to be completely perfect and measuring up to law. So if you want to do this, if you want to, to live by a little bit of the law, then guess what? You got to do the whole thing. And you know, it's not really anything about circumcision. That's not the issue. 
It wasn't Paul's day, but in our day, it could be anything. And if you want to make a little bit of a lot, listen, you're under obligation to keep the whole thing perfectly all the time. And you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. So in verses 2, 3, and 4, Paul really gives a warning here to people. Now, it's interesting because, you know, when people talk about falling from grace, what kind of people are they, are they often referring to? Christians who are living like what? Living like the world, right? Living immorally. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're shacked up with their girlfriend. They're, they're going out partying and drinking and dancing. They're, they're doing all kinds of wild and crazy stuff, right? They're watching movies that, you know, Christians have no business watching sort of thing. This is what we often think, right? But is that the person Paul's addressing here? Paul, in fact, is addressing the person who's living by law, who's living a very moral life, who's doing all the right things he thinks he's supposed to do and not doing the things he doesn't think he's supposed to do, thinking that it's going to somehow lead to something. And Paul says, Christ is of no benefit, no effect. You've walked away from him. Now that's what he said in Galatians 1.6. You've walked away from him. Not something, not a message, but a person. You walked away from him. You've been severed from Christ and you've fallen from grace. You've returned to the law. How many times have you, have you heard someone ask about someone who's living a perfect life or on, at least on appearance-wise, and they've said, I wonder if that person's saved? Because often we, we say, I wonder if that person's saved talking about the immoral person. But I think Paul's saying, you know, I wonder about all those moral people who are depending upon that morality. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with living a good, you know, uprighteous life. Nothing wrong with that. But the people that are depending upon that to mean something, Paul says, I wonder how many of them are saved. Now, there's nothing wrong with it, right? There's nothing wrong with living an upright life. Don't get me wrong there. But the idea of falling from grace really is addressed at people trying to live the Christian life, or righteous life, according to the law, apart from Christ. They've fallen from grace. So it's a great warning. It's a grave warning. But verse 5 says, but for we through the Spirit, by faith, remember, it's this message, it's all about by faith, by depending upon Christ, we, by, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Speaking of the, 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 the second coming and, and you know, receiving new bodies and so forth, the hope that we're looking forward to. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Big deal. So what? Right? What does matter? What does matter is faith working through love. And that's going to be the theme of chapters 5 and 6. This is what matters. It's not about observing the outward standards and, and, uh, and trying to measure up by performance and behavior and, and, and looking right and so forth. That's not what matters. What matters is trusting in Him, faith, doing what? Loving. Faith working through love. 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1 5. One of my quickly growing to be my favorite verses. It's been bouncing around in my head now for about two years. It just won't leave. 
It says the goal of our instruction is to love. My hope is the point you're here isn't just to learn good theology. That's good. That's wonderful. But if it ends there, it's wasted. The goal of our instruction is that we would love. How? From a pure heart, right desires, good motives, not self-centered, but really looking out for other people's best interests, living from a pure heart, a good conscience, literally meaning a new spirit, and a sincere faith, trusting and depending upon the life of Christ to live his life through us. That's the goal. That's the point. And Paul says what really matters is our depending upon him resulting in love, yielding love, working through love. Yes, Danielle. Yes, but that's, that's a reference to the, the glorified body that's coming our way. So in Romans 8, uh, verse 23-ish uh, to 26-ish in there, it's, uh, it talks about we're looking forward to the hope of the resurrection, this hope of righteousness. That's what Paul's talking about. So in our spirit, we're righteous, but we're looking forward to the glorification of our new bodies. That's what he's looking, talking about. Right? And then verse 7, then he says, but you're running so well. You're doing well when I was there. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This word obeying literally means, you know, it's talking about trusting, putting your faith, depending upon not just truth, but the truth. And who is the truth? Jesus. So who hindered you from relying and depending upon Jesus? Who got in the way of that? Me personally? <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> well, we allow it to happen, right? We get led astray by other people because we're not willing to stand firm, right? So who hinders you? This persuasion, this, this teaching, this, this idea, it didn't come from him who calls you. It didn't come from Jesus. But a little leaven uh, leavens the whole lump of dough. It's the idea of, you know, uh, how many people would love a nice, cool glass of water with just a little bit of arsenic? Just a small bit, you know. It'll just kill you a little bit, nothing big, right? Right? I mean, that's what it is, right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. A little bit of arsenic makes the whole thing poison, right? And what we do, if we add a little bit of law... You see, a lot of people say we need a balance law and grace. No. There is no balance of law and grace. It's all about grace. It starts with grace and it ends with grace. Right? Titus 2, 11, 12 says the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. What's appeared? Grace. Verse 12 then goes on to say, and grace is what's teaching us to live holy, righteous, upright, godly lives. It's grace that leads us into that, not the law. So we don't balance law and grace. We don't keep, you know, grace in check with law. No, a little bit of law leavens the whole lump of dough. It ruins grace. It's no longer grace. But yet we do this. We pick and choose. For example, let's, let's pick one thing, for example, tithing. Here's the big thing, right? We say what we need to do is we need to give 10%. That's a tithe, right? Now, you can get into the debate whether it's 10% before taxes or after taxes. You know, I, I, I guess it's probably before taxes, right? 
And is it, you know, the first 10% of your, you know, uh, you know your paycheck because you're supposed to give your first fruits. And so, you know, you, you got to wait till you get the first 10% of your month and then you, then you can collect after that. And so there's all this teaching about tithing and so forth. Well, just with a question, you know, 10%, that's what makes you okay. What if you give 9.9? Does God round? Is 9.9 okay? What about 9.5? Is 9.5 okay? Because, you know, I mean, to what degree does he round? And then is 9% okay? Or, you know, is, it, is he only round one decimal place? You know, how does it work? Sorry? <laughs> the gross, yeah, and it, that's right. It, how, it depends. He, he'll round on the on the gross, but not on the net. Maybe is that how it works? I mean, he probably rounds down. <laughs> rounds down. No rounding up here, <laughs> right? The <laughs> rules of rounding is you always round to an even number. So listen, I mean that. What have we done when we add that into it? We add this this law, this command that says you must give in order to be okay. And if you don't give at this amount, you're not okay. Now listen, we're going to talk about giving later on tonight, but this idea of tithing is not in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament principle, an Old Testament law that we bring into our churches today. And a little leaven, leaven is the whole lump of dough, right? A little bit of law will ruin the whole thing. And Paul goes on to say, but I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever it is. The one who's hindered you, the one who's leading you astray, God will look after him. Paul says, I, I don't have to, to go there and kill him myself. But he's probably tempted to at times. But, but he says, I trust that God will look after that person. And I trust, I have confidence in you, that you will return, that you will trust in him. But brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? I mean, if they're really saying, this is what Paul really meant to say, then why do all these Judaizers come after me? If I say, yeah, keep following the law, now you're saved, why would the Jews want to kill me? Think about it. Think, for goodness sake. Sit down, have a jolly good old think, as Malcolm Smith said, right? Think. And that's what he's doing. Why am I still persecuted? If I am, then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. What's the stumbling block? What's the stumbling block? Jesus plus nothing. You see, the cross is really a huge offense to the pride of man. If you think about it, it is, it is a great assault against the pride of man in three different ways, right? For one, to the, to the unbeliever. The guy who rejects God or rejects the notion of salvation. The idea of Jesus dying on the cross, the idea that he needs to be saved in the first place is an affront to him. Just the thought. What do you mean there's something wrong with me? What do you mean there's something I need to be saved from? What do you mean I'm guilty and condemned? What do you mean I'm deserving of death and punishment? What do you mean by that? I don't agree with that. I'm a good person. I'm doing okay. The idea that they need to be saved is an affront to man's pride. And then you have the religious person who recognizes they need to be saved. And they realize there's something wrong. But what do they now do? They now go and try to rescue themselves through their performance, through their good works, through their crawling on broken glass, and, and just goes on and on and on, right? And just desperately trying to be saved through their own works and efforts, right? And God comes along and says, you can't save yourself. 
So the second thing it's the reason it's an affront to man's pride is because it says you can't save yourself. I need to save you. So this guy, he's realized he's, he's in trouble. He's drowning, but he can't save himself. He needs someone to rescue him. That's another affront to man's pride. You can't save yourself. But then finally, the greatest and deepest affront to man's pride, what does God do to you and I on that cross? He crucified us. That was God's judgment of you before you were saved. If there was anything redeemable of you before salvation, if there was 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% that was good, he would have said, okay, we've got a starting point. We can build from that. We can go from there. But when God crucified you and I on that cross, what was he saying? There is nothing good in you. Isn't that what Jeremiah 17, 9 says? The heart of man is deceitful and is desperately wicked. It is terminal. Who can understand it? Right? There is no saving you and I. There is no redeeming the old man. He had to die. And so it is an affront to man's pride because you have nothing to offer God. There is no good in you before salvation. Cross is an affront. It destroys. It just... It goes against man's pride. Man wants to think either I don't need to be saved, I'm good, or I can save myself, or there's still some good in me before the cross. God says no. No to all three. And so if we try to remove the stumbling rock, we're really unmoving, removing the offense to it. Verse 12 though, but I wish those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. The word mutilate means to cut themselves off. And what's he talking about? Castrate. That's exactly what he's talking about. You, he, they want you to be circumcised? Paul says, I wish they would castrate themselves. Strong language, right? I mean, he started off in chapter 1, damn them to hell, anyone that preaches a different gospel. And if you weren't sure what I meant, I'll say it again, damn them straight to hell. And now he's saying, I wish they would just castrate themselves, leave you alone. I mean, do you see the, the, the seriousness of what Paul's dealing with here? Because he's dealing with people's lives. He's dealing with their freedom. And, you know, our freedom in Christ is something we should treasure, something we need to protect because it will be assaulted. But, you know, think about it. How much do we really protect it? Not very well. Verse 13 now, for you are called to freedom. You are free and you're called to freedom. But, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Right? Now, this isn't about balance. A lot of people have said, now here Paul's going to balance the message of grace. This has nothing to do with balance. This has everything to do with maturity. There's a big difference between the two. God's not balancing your understanding of grace. He's maturing your understanding of grace. And because now we're free, you're free. But listen, don't turn that freedom. Don't give that an opportunity or a starting point or an occasion for your flesh. Now, what's your flesh? Is it just your body? No. Relying on yourself. Living for yourself gratifying your own desires, looking out for number one, 
right? Protecting me, getting my needs met, right? And Paul says, don't turn that. Don't use your freedom for that. You could, but don't. There's no sense to it, right? Instead, what? Through love, serve one another. Through love, love one another. That's the key, right? For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, isn't this what Jesus says in John 13, verses 34 and 35? I give you a new commandment. It's to love one another as I've loved you. And in fact, as people see this love, they will know you're my disciple. Now listen, understand this for a second here. This word love here, there are five different Greek words for the word love. We have one, right? There's five different. One of them is agape. It's probably the one where most Christians are most familiar with. And agape really is the unconditional love of God. Does that make sense? But it's more than that. See, in 1 John 4, it says God is love. God is agape. It's not something he has. It's who he is right? Now, here's the thing. When God asks you to love, to agape another person, what's he asking you to do? Live unconditionally with my love. Now, I want you to understand something. Loving another person like Christ loved you, that's not difficult. That's impossible, right? You and I, we can't do that. Only God can do that through us. Right? Hence the reason. It's faith working through love. It's depending upon Him working, resulting in love. It's not I, but Christ living through me, working through love. So it's letting God live His life through us, loving one another, serving another. Not looking out for my own interests. Not trying to protect me. Right? Now here's the thing. A lot of you guys here have, have understood this grace message probably for years. Some of you even known it longer than I have, which, that's great. Many of you probably even know it better than I do. That's wonderful. But in a, in a group of this size, just by sheer odds, there are probably a number of people here who have taken this message of freedom and they've abused it. And, and what they've done is, is we, we take this wonderful message and we say, wow. I'm free. I don't have to do anything. So, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything. And, and grace becomes lazy. And we really use this message of grace as an excuse for our laziness. Now, let me, let me get something straight and clear. A lot of people, when they come to understand grace, part of the reason they came to understand grace is because they were burned by the church. Yeah. They were burned. They were, they were abused by religion. And they need a break. And you know what? Go for it. Take that break. Get well. Rest. Get healed. Take that time. That's important. That's crucial. But don't stay there. Don't, don't live there. You don't live in a hospital. You go there, you get well, you come out, and you get strong. You, rehab, you rehabilitate, and you don't jump right back in. Sometimes you work your way in slowly. 
But I see a lot of Christians understanding grace, or to a degree, I should say, understanding grace, sitting on the sidelines, afraid to go back in to rescue other people. And that's, that's a big part of what we need to do. This idea of loving and serving one another. I'm okay. I'm okay. But you know what? A lot of people don't know that. A lot of people don't know they're okay. A lot of people don't know the gospel, that forgiveness of sins has been proclaimed to them, and that they can be freed from all things through Him, of which the law can never set them free from. And so we need to go and to share. And you don't have to go and witness with words. Just go love. Go and share the life of Christ with people. And there are a multitude of ways. And this doesn't become a new law. This isn't what you have to do. This is what you get to do. This is the opportunity that God, who will provide the resources and strength to pull it off. And so if you find yourself sitting on the sidelines because you're burnt and you've been you know, abused and bruised by the church, take your time. Get well. Go for it by all means because you're no good out there if you're all beat up and, and abused. But when you get well, don't stay there. Be willing to step out to extend grace and share grace with other people. Be a grace missionary, right? And share this wonderful message of love with others. Danielle. When we truly understand grace, we won't When we truly understand grace. You know, we'll truly understand grace when we get to heaven. Because um, grace is a person, right? That's what Titus 2.11 said. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Well, who is grace? That's Jesus. Um, but what will end up happening, though, is as we live by grace, yeah, we probably won't get burnt out. And as we live by grace, we won't let others put us under the law because we'll keep standing firm in the freedom that we have. And, you know, it'll be, it's not that you won't face abuse. I mean, look what happened to Paul, right? Still being persecuted, being left for dead. So it's not an easy life by no stretch. But he will provide the strength for whatever you face, right? For the whole law, verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Remember how we, we, we said earlier, when we were going through the, the history part of it and going through the book of Acts, we saw in the Jerusalem Council, they made a decision that, yes, you are saved, Jesus plus nothing, you are saved apart from the law, simply by faith. And then James wrote a letter. And in that letter, he, he added some other conditions. Do you remember that? In, in Acts 15, don't eat you know, the blood of animals and don't do this and don't do that and so forth. And it was almost like, you know, was he adding a little bit of leaven? Was he adding a little bit of law? And then we read in, in Galatians here, in Galatians 2, and Paul says that they added nothing to my gospel. All they just said was, don't forget the poor, which I was more than willing not to do. Now, is there a discrepancy there? Because Paul said they had nothing, but yet in the book of Acts, you know, both were in, they made the statement in the letter they wrote, there seemed to be adding something. How do those two add up? Well, turn in your Bibles to Romans 13. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to endeavor to show you how the two actually do line up. So in Romans 13, beginning in verse 8, 
Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. See, what is the law asking of us to do? To love God with all you got and love your neighbor as you love yourself. I mean, Jesus, that's what Jesus said, right? When they quizzed him on what the law meant or how to, well, how to best summarize the law, he says this, love God with all you got, love your neighbor as you love yourself. In those two commands, the whole law, all the prophets, everything is written is summed up in those two commands. So there's the Reader's Digest of the Old Testament. Love God and love others as you love yourself, Right? And so Paul says here now in Romans 13 that the, if you love your neighbor, you fulfill the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? So that's the whole sum. Why? Because why? verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is what he's getting at here in verse 14. Um, Verse, verse 12, now the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of the darkness, the deeds of the flesh, in essence, and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Exactly what he's saying here in 13 and what he's going to get on to say later on in chapter 5. But then in verse 14, now... Except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Now, this is a dagger through my heart so many times. I have blown this command so many times since I've understood grace. Because you know what I've done? I've made this mistake countless times. I begin to judge people who don't understand grace. And now, to be acceptable to me, you need to understand grace. And if you don't, you're not good enough. So the one who's weak in faith, who's relying on the law, I judge them. I don't accept them. And that's wrong. That's not right at all. And I know I'm not the only one. Because I've heard some of you talk. Right? <laughs> right? We won't do a testimony time, but I know, I know I'm not the only one that's made this mistake. Right? We, we now judge those who don't know grace. And we take this wonderful message of grace and we make it a law. You need to understand what I understand. Or you need to say it the way I say it. Why do we do that? Well, because we like to feel better about ourselves. Because in judging other people, we lift ourselves up. Right? That's what we like to do. Verse 2, but one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge a servant of another? Christians, we love to judge, right? We say, oh, but you know, you'll know them by our fruit. and We love to be fruit inspectors, right? Listen, not for you to judge. Who are you to judge a servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And oh, by the way, he will stand. He will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Right? It's not about us judging him. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does it for the Lord. He who gives thanks to God and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to him. For not one of us to live for himself, not one of them dies for himself. 
If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. So accept people. Love people. Even those who are not understanding grace. Right? Don't judge them. Don't cast them off. But, you, but verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Guilty is charged again. Because not only do I judge some, I actually contempt, hold others in contempt. Because they don't understand what I understand. Listen, God had, I had nothing to do with understanding this. God chose to reveal it to me. I know he did the same to you. So why do we elevate ourselves? Why do we boast about this? It's not right. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God, not to you. That's why you're not to judge. That's God's job, right? Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this. Make this the focal point. If Christians decide to do this as much as they judge, I think we'd have a whole different church. Not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. You see what James was doing in that letter by saying, listen, don't eat of you know, blood and, and animal sacrifice and so forth. He was saying, listen, there's a lot of Jews out there who are recovering from the law. They're trying to get over that. And for you to just show up with blood dripping down your mouth and do you want a pork chop and, and all this stuff, <laughs> that, that might be too much for them. Right? So don't put a stumbling block to them. That's what he was saying. And here's the thing, the one who's under grace, the one who knows freedom, they're willing to curtail their freedom. They're not, they don't feel the need to abuse their freedom and to, to just uh, flaunt it to everyone else. They're willing, out of love for another person, to respect that. And that's grace. That's love. And so if you, if you as a person believe certain things, go for it. You can. You're acceptable. You don't have to believe what I believe in order to be acceptable. Right? Go ahead. You have that freedom. And I have determined I won't try to put a stumbling block in front of you. If that's what you want to believe, that's okay. Now, if you go and try and bring that on other people, now we've got a problem. Now that's what Paul's dealing with here. If you want to force your law system on others, there's a problem. Now, make, may, let me make something clear here. If you want to force grace on another person, you and I have a problem. Because at that moment, you've made grace into a law. And don't take this wonderful, pure message and twist it and make it into something it's not. But what ends up happening? But you bite and devour one another. And you take care that you're not consumed by one another. And this is what we do in the church. We bite and we consume our brethren. Those in the body. It's in essence, I am going to cut off my nose to spite my face. Ha <laughs> ha, that'll learn you. Right? That's what we're doing. I mean, it was interesting. Today I, I was... I was on the internet and I, and I found, I came across this, this speaker and he had some interesting things to say, so I wanted to see what else he had to say. And, and, and as I started searching some more, it, it was interesting. Some of the, half of it was what he was saying and the other half were people denouncing him. And they get nitpicky on little issues, little things. I don't like what he said in answer to this one simple question. 
I don't like how he said he would try to share the gospel through, through electronic media. I didn't like that answer. So I'm going to nitpick on that one. For goodness sakes, what are we doing? We're biting and devouring one another within the church. We're killing ourselves. And what's going to happen? Here's the warning. Take care. You're not destroyed by one another. I mean, that's what the enemy does. He turns us on each other and just sits back and goes, perfect. Perfect. But that's just within the church. How many times is this going on within our own homes? I see this so many times in the counseling environment. Husband and wife biting and devouring one another because they're not living up to the other's expectations. They're not living up to the other's standards. And so they're just beating each other up. They're abusing one another. But listen, you, husband and wife, you're one. And if you're beating the other person up, who are you beating up? You're beating up yourself. Right? It's like you take all the ingredients together, baking a cake, you mix it together, and you start stirring it up and says, I'm going to throw some dirt at the eggs. And you go and th throw dirt at the eggs. What did you just do to the milk and the flour? You just throw dirt at that too. And you and your, and your spouse, you're one. And when you start attacking your spouse and biting and devouring them, who are you actually killing? Yourself. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You see, you might expect Paul, especially if you're the one who loves the law, okay, tell me what I need to do and not do. And, and now I'll set my mind to it, and look what Paul says. Walk by the Spirit. Which, if you're someone that really wants, you know, the formula or the rules, or, okay, give me now the six-step process I need to do, you'd be awfully disappointed. Right? Because Paul isn't going to give you a system of rules. He's just going to say, walk by the Spirit. Trust Him. And as long as you're trusting Him, what will you not do? you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh, right? So the idea here is now, don't turn your opportunity to, to, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity of the flesh. It's not, don't live after the flesh, don't live after the flesh, don't live after the flesh. It's rather, walk by the Spirit. And as long as you're walking by the Spirit, you can't fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's like if you own two cars, a good car and a bad car. And if you don't want to drive the bad car, guess what you do? Drive the good car. Because as long as you're driving the good car, what can you not drive? You can't drive the bad car. So don't worry about the bad car. Focus in on the good car. And walking by the Spirit just simply means trust Him. Depend upon Him. Talk with Him. Walk with Him. Live life with Him. Live with Him as if He were actually in you. Pretend for a moment that God lives in you. Because you know why? He does. <laughs> he actually lives inside of you. So talk to him throughout the day. Ask him what he thinks, what he wants to do, where he's working, what he's up to. Talk to him and let him talk to him. Maybe that's probably more important. Right? And so that's walking with him, setting your mind on what he's up to, not trying to look after your own interests and your own needs. Why? Because verse 17, the flesh sets a desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. 
In verse 17, there are three characters to this play. What's, what's, this play is a war that's going on. Who are the three characters in the play? So we have flesh, number one. What's number two? Spirit. What's number three? You. Right? What does that mean, flesh is not? It's not you. Right? Sadly, the NIV people have said, this is your sinful nature. No. No. A thousand times, no. If God wanted to say sinful nature, he would have said sinful nature. Instead, he used the Greek word sarks, literally meaning flesh. That is not you. That's not your desires. In fact, look what he says. The flesh, not your sinful nature, the flesh sets a desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, that you may not do the things that you please. What is it that you please to do? What is it you want to do? What is it you want to do? Love. You actually want to love. I used to think that means you please. Oh, you know what you want to do? Oh, you want to sin. Sin, sin, sin. But God's just getting in the way, preventing that from happening. If you had a sinful nature, that would be true. But what has Paul just been going on and on for four chapters trying to get across? You are now righteous. You are now justified. Romans 7, Paul says, you know, when I'm sinning, I'm not doing the thing I want to do. What does Paul want to do? He wants to love. He wants to live right. So when he's sinning, he's not actually doing what he wants to do. As a Christian, you don't want to sin. You might say, oh, that's not true. In that moment, oh, I want to sin. Listen, if that were true, then how do you feel after you sin? You feel horrible. Why? If you wanted to do it and you did it, you should feel good about yourself. But the very fact that you feel horrible and guilty is a good sign because it tells you what you actually wanted to do. What you actually wanted to do was to love, to live right. You don't actually want to sin. That's the deception that sin is putting on. That's the trick. But you actually want to do what you please. However, there's a battle going on between flesh and spirit. Flesh is my own resources, me trying to live life on myself. But it's not me. It's not who I am. No. Right? It's what I'm trying to do in my own strength, but it's not who I am. Right? But you who are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. So this idea here is almost this, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. It's a conditional statement. If this part's true, then that part's true. And since you're led and walked by the Spirit, we don't need the law to keep us in check. Well, now he's going to try to understand this more about what the flesh is. So now he says, because here's the danger, right? Well, you know, I'm free and I'm going to love other people. That means my definition of love for you and, uh, and your definition of love might be two different things. So Paul says, let's, let's make it clear, right? Let's understand what flesh is, what it looks like, and what real love or real spirit looks like. So there's no doubt. So he's going to try to paint a picture of these two. And so he says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Now notice, 
It's the deeds. It's the work. It's the labor. It's the, it's the, de- it's the hard work of the flesh, and it's evident. It's clear. And then there's their immorality, which is things like adultery or uh, uh, harlotry or incest or something like that. Or it's impurity. It's sensuality. It's idolatry. Now, before we get too far on this list, you know, we often we look at these verses and we say, well, that just describes the Christian to a T or the non-Christian to a T, right? But who is Paul addressing this section to? To Christians. As a Christian, you are not immune to this. In fact, Paul's saying, as Christians, this is what your flesh will look like, right? He's not talking about the unbeliever here. He's talking about the believer living after the flesh. This is what your life will look like when you're living out of the flesh. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Now, as Christians, we don't have to have many golden calves sitting on our mantles at home, right? Right? No golden calves, right? Okay. Because that would change the whole meeting for the rest of the night if we did, right? So there's no golden calves. But, you know, we have other idols. You see, an idol essentially is anything that you worship. And you worship anything you find life in. And you see, we have many other people or relationships or things that we worship instead of God because that's where we find life. It might be our job. It might be a spouse. It might be children. It might be friends. It might be your reputation. It might be your church. It might be your abilities. It may be yourself. The list is endless. But as Christians, there are a lot of Christians with a lot of idols out there. Things they depend upon and find life in. Sorcery. Now, many Christians aren't into witchcraft, but you know what this word sorcery literally means? It literally means medication. It's drug abuse looking for the high. That's what that word means. Looking for the high that would come through witchcraft and so forth, through spells and such and such and such. That's what this word sorcery is getting at. So as Christians, how many people abuse drugs? And not just illegal drugs, but what about even over-the-counter drugs? Right? Or just on-the-aisle drugs. Entities, which is fighting going on. Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. I mean, for some churches, I've just described the last church meeting, right? I mean, we laugh, but it's really not funny. I mean, it's a sad statement. This is the church. This is the light of the world. And yet, you all know it's true. Disputes, dissensions, factions, we could call these denominations, right? Envying, literally ill will, but no Christian has that, right? Drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Listen, these are not the problems of the church. None of these are the problems of the church. These are the symptoms within the church. What's the problem? Flesh. They've walked away from the simplicity of trusting and depending upon Jesus, and they've turned to trusting in themselves. And things like these, so the list goes on. It's not limited to this. 
of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is he talking about salvation? Can't be. Otherwise, you have to ignore the first four and a half chapters of Galatians. Right? And so he can't be talking about inheriting the kingdom of God. Instead, what he's talking about is back what we saw in Acts, the kingdom of God is really talking about walking in the Spirit, revealing the life of Christ. That's what we saw in Acts, um, uh, Acts 14 and verse um, 22, and then again in Romans 14, verse 17. Right? The kingdom of heaven is not eating and drinking and so forth, but life, joy, peace, and righteousness is walking in the Spirit. So when you're living out of the flesh, this will be evident, and you'll be missing out on the life of Christ. But, and here's the great contrast, one of the greatest words in the English language, but. But the fruit. Now, look at the contrast. We've got deeds, hard work and labor on one side, and the other is the fruit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's agape. Right off the bat, that should tell you that's not coming from me. Right? It's not the fruit of the Christian. Nor is it the fruits of the Christian. It is one, singular, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of Christ is what? It's going to be love. It's going to be joy. It's going to be peace. It's going to be patience. It's going to be kindness. It's going to be goodness. It's going to be faithfulness. It's going to be gentleness. Humility, literally. Self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You can't regulate this. You can't try to control this. You can't try to make this happen. This is natural. This is fruit. But you know what ends up happening in our churches we see this list and we look at our own lives and say, uh, my life looks a whole lot like this, you know, the deeds of the flesh, and not like this. And I, I don't know how to do it, so I'm going to try in my own strength to clean this up and manufacture fruit. And this is what we come up with. Looks good, right? Plastic. Plastic fruit. Thank you, Rhoda. It is, it is good looking. I mean, you you got to check it out. It's incredible. It, it's got little dents in it. I mean, even the, the, the underneath the part looks wonderful. The, the, the tip looks good. It looks like a real fruit. But you bite into it, and what will you discover? Death. There is no life in this. It does not satisfy. And we hang this on our tree and say, look at me. Inspect my fruit. It looks good, doesn't it? And God says, no, not so good. It's not the real thing. It's manufactured of the flesh. Good looking on the outside, death on the inside. But the stuff I offer, God says, real deal. Looks good on the inside. Offers life. Right? You can't manufacture this. You can't create this, enforce this. This is the natural result of resting and abiding and trusting in Christ. And He begins to, to produce it in you. Our job is simply to bear the fruit in John 15, it says, not to produce it. That's why it's the fruit of the, Christ, fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the Christian. So now, those who belong to Christ, 
have crucified the flesh uh, and with its passions and desires. Now, here's the thing. This word belong to, I've got in italics because it's really not there. It's actually the word belong to, who belong to, isn't really there. Literally, what this should read is those that are of Christ Jesus. You see, what is Paul's talking about at this point? What's his, what's his focus? What he's talking about is walk by the Spirit, right? That's the focus. Now, now that you're free, don't turn that freedom as an opportunity to the flesh. Don't gratify the flesh, but walk by the Spirit. And how do we walk by the Spirit? Well, those who belong to Christ Jesus, those are of Christ Jesus, those that are walking in Christ Jesus, well, they have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. What does it mean to crucify the flesh? Is this where I need to die daily? No. Not at all. Let's do a quick review. See, in Romans 8, 12, and 23, Paul gives us commands. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You don't have to live after the flesh. You are free. Freed from the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, what will you experience? You want to know what that's like? How do you feel after you sin? That's death. Okay, that's the simplest way to explain it. And I'm glad you all know what that's like, right? But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This idea of putting to death the deeds of the body, what does that mean? Well, let's take a look at this diagram here. And we're going to start with um, an unbeliever. Because here we got an old, old man's spirit. His spirit is cut off from God, separated from God. And he's got something in him called indwelling sin. Now, is this sin him? No. But it resides in his body, but it's not him. Right? And Romans 6.6 6 says that our old self, our old man, was crucified with Christ. So this person, this old man, was crucified with Christ. Why? In order that this body of sin, indwelling sin, would be done away with, or literally would be made powerless. Sin used to be this person's master. But what happened to the slave? The slave died. So who is this person, a ma who is sin a master of now? No one. Right? So that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, so that we would no longer be its slave. So God crucifies the old man so we're free, but then he raises up a brand new person and puts his life in us. So now we're a Christian. But notice what didn't die. Sin didn't die. I did. Sin is still very much alive and well. And what is it going to be doing? Well, it's going to see an opportunity in the world. It's going to see a place where it can tempt me in the world. For example, in, in kind of what we've been looking at here in, in the book of Galatians, maybe, I, maybe sin sees something in the world that says, you know, these people, they're going to hurt me. They're going to do something to me, and I'm going to suffer pain, so I need to protect myself. In fact, what I need to do is I need to control them so they don't control me. I need to control them so they don't reject me and keep them in line. So these are the thoughts that sin, along with the enemy, is planting in my mind, 
dropping these thoughts over and over and over again. And now my emotions get all riled up saying, yeah, I don't want to get hurt. I don't want to feel pain anymore. I've already got enough wounds in there. And so now it comes to my will and it's decision time. And what am I going to do? Well, if I choose to follow along with what indwelling sin has said, and I now depend upon my own resources, the flesh, what ends up happening is the flesh infiltrates my soul and the body, and I've just produced dead works at best or sins. I try to control another. I try to manipulate another. I try to protect myself at the expense of another. Now notice, my spirit, is my spirit infected? No. Spirit's clean, righteous, justified. But the flesh now wreaks havoc in my mind, my emotions, because my will made a bad choice, and now my body begins to become an instrument of unrighteousness, it says in Romans. So what's my option then? Well, Romans 6.11 says, Now even so consider, literally reckon, count it as a fact, what? that you're dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's not something I need to do. I don't need to become dead. I don't need to die to sin. I just need to recognize I am dead to sin. And when did I die? 2,000 years ago with Christ. And now I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't stop with the death, because you're more than dead to sin. You're also now alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christ now lives in you. This essentially is Galatians 2.20. Right? First half, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. That's, you've been dead to sin. Second half, but now Christ lives in me. In the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's the second half. I'm now alive to God. He lives in me. He wants to live through me. He wants to live the Christian life through me. So therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you may obey not your lusts, it's less. Those temptations, those sins are not yours because you, Christian, want to do good. Romans 7, 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God. I want to love. But sin is saying, no, protect yourself. Control another. And that's its lesson. Don't obey it. Don't listen to it. This is a choice you can make. You're now free. Before, you weren't free. Sin said jump, and you did it. Now you're free. You need to do this choice. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. When I listen to sin, and I go in, and I, it says live by your flesh, my body becomes an instrument of unrighteousness. And I either sin, or at best, dead works. Plastic, good-looking fruit. Right? So don't present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourself to who? To God. As alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What does that mean? Well, when sin sees those same problems in the world, it comes to my mind and my emotions. Now it's to my will. And I say, God, what do you want to do? I don't need to protect me. You can do that. I'm okay. I'm dead to sin. I don't have to listen to that anymore. But now you want to live through me. What do you want to do? And what ends up happening is we now begin to live and rely on the Spirit. And the Spirit of Christ in our spirit begins to infect our soul and then into our body. 
And then what does it produce? Real fruit, good works, acts of righteousness, because I've allowed my body to become an instrument of righteousness unto God. That's what it means to crucify the flesh. That's the choice you and I get to make. And guess how often we get to make this choice? Every day. Because sin hasn't gone anywhere. Sin didn't die, but I died to it. And now I'm alive and well, and, God, and Christ lives in me. And so if we live by the Spirit in Galatians 5.25, let us walk by the Spirit. What if we boiled down all the, the, you know, the church rules and so forth, and what if it was just you do what the, what the Spirit leads you to do? Right, Johnny? What if we did that? But yet, you know what? Would our church mortgage be paid on time? Would we have enough church workers? Help out in the nursery? Would people come to church? Would they read their Bible enough? Would they witness? You see, the moment I take the law away, I can't control you anymore. In whose hands do I place you under? Into God's. Is He trustworthy? Has been so far. So let us live and walk by the Spirit. Let us continue to trust Him. Amen. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.